0: My message this morning, I want, to, uh, I want it to be a message that reinsures and also one that gives opportunity for those who may not be so sure about their relationship with Christ to have an opportunity to do that. I want to start <clears throat> by telling you a little story, and this is true to the best of my recollection, and I think it happened about, I'm going to say a year ago. Um, in 2014, five years ago, I went through the rigmarole, and that's what it is, to volunteer to be a DAV van driver. DAV stands for Disabled American Veterans. The van is that Ford Flex, many of you have probably seen, parked down by the jail. It's always interesting to me that we park it by the jail, but that's not really have anything to do with... But um, <clears throat> after going through the rigmarole, I call it, uh, Uh, I started driving. We usually take that van down on Tuesdays and Thursdays. When I first started, we would go whenever somebody needed, so a lot of times there was only one person riding along, a a veteran. Um, And that happened so much that we got people to start making their appointments uh, to the DAV hospital in in Sioux Falls on Tuesdays and Thursdays. There's a gentleman, and I'm not going to tell you his name, because knowing What goes on in here, you will figure out who it is. Somebody's probably related to him. But anyway, this gentleman had rode along a time or two when we had two or three people in the van, and usually about three is the maximum that you can haul in there, particularly if they're disabled rather severely. But um, he never really said too much. Most of the time, he went to sleep. And then one time, about a year ago, I had him by myself. and we were headed out of town. For some reason or other, he decided he needed to tell me why he was authorized to go to the Veterans Hospital. It was nothing to me. I drive the van. You know. um, But after he did that, he sat there a little bit, and then he looked at me, and I can still see him out of the corner of my eye. He looked at me, and he says, I suppose you're one of those born-again Christians. I said, yes, I am. He sat there for a minute, probably not that long, but it was in space. In the meantime, I'm saying, Lord, I think I'm going to need some help here. Um, Help me out with this. He said, you can't show me where it says anywhere in the Bible that you have to be born again. I mean, he was just like that. He raised his voice a little bit. you know, And I wanted to say, yes, I can. But inside of me, I, you know, I'll credit the Holy Spirit, now's not the time. Because I thought he was trying to pick an argument. The other thing is, when you go through the rigmarole that I talked about, we are told there are two things you must not talk about your passengers with. One of them is politics, and you know the other one is religion. Don't talk to them about it, even if they try to engage you in the conversation. So... I've always tried to be honest with that, but in my mind I'm going, Lord, I've got to respond to this guy some way. And then he settles back in his seat, and he said, you can't tell me, and he leaned back against the seat and went to sleep. And we rode all the way to Sioux Falls that way. On the way down there, I'm you know, and he's sleeping over there, and I'm saying, "Lord, I've got to find a way to respond to him. I just can't let him tell me that I can't show him, and knowing that I can, just let him get by with it. that Lord, that's it. I just don't think you want me to do that so It came to me while I was sitting in the waiting room down there. I mean, we have, as drivers, we have some chores we have to do, and I did all of those kinds of things and waited for him to have his appointments and that sort of thing. And it came to me, why don't you write down on a piece of paper John 3, 1 through 18. And since, you know, he wants to pick an argument, and since you're not supposed to talk to him about religion, when you let him off at home, when we get back to Huron, and we dropped him off at his apartment, hand him this piece of paper and say, you know, you can't tell me, but I need you to know there is a place in the Bible where it says you must be born again. So I did that. But I'm not going to tell you what he said and did until I get to the end. And if I forget, raise your hand and remind me, okay? But John 3, 1 through 18, I handed that slip of paper to him and I had it written on there pretty plainly. But let's just take a minute and I know that uh, many of you are very familiar with this passage of scripture. In my mind, this may very well be the most central theme, the most profound set of scripture verses in the whole Bible. (coughs) John had a way here, and I want to expand on this a little bit later, but had a way here if you think about it from the beginning of the Bible till the very end, and you know this includes John 3.16, and we all know, for God so loved the world, is that not what the entire Bible is about, Encapsulated and we have Nicodemus coming. So let's just take a minute and read about him. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. There's our words. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water And the Spirit, capital letter S. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Jesus said you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people don't accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Lord, we've sung our songs, we've given our announcements, we've collected the money, we've praised you, we've read scripture. Would you please come and move in on us just now and help us to focus on this very important concept of being born again and rightly related to you. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Before I share some thoughts with you about this particular section of Scripture. Let me give you some things about John, and some of you I know know these things. There may be those that don't. But John wrote his gospel approximately 25 years after Luke. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they all were written about two years within each other, like 55 and 57 and 59 or B.C. or something like that. You go clear up 25 years later before John writes a gospel. So when you read John, and I know I'm speaking to you like an academic person, and I can't help that, for that's what I am in this regard. But 25 years later, make no mistake, John had read many times Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that we often call the Synoptic Gospels. John saw no need to repeat all of the things that are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All of those miraculous signs and things like that 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 they had talked about and, and written about that Jesus did, John didn't need to address those. And if you read John's gospel carefully, he doesn't find any fault with those either. He just gives us more. In fact, John gives us the God perspective of Jesus' time on earth. Whereas the other three gospels kind of give you the human perspective, you know, healing the sick and giving sight to the blind and fixing the lame man and so on. John does some of that too, but there's only one miracle that all four Gospels address, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. Of course, the resurrection they all of Jesus, they all address that. But that's the, that's the only repeat of all four most of what John is telling you is new information. And what John is trying to do, in my mind, and, he's, and he even says so, is to give you the idea of how to be related to Christ from God's perspective. So when you read John, I, you know, I think about all of those kinds of things that he addresses. <clears throat> seemed like there was something else I was going to tell you about John, and I might think of it later. But what I want to do is give you a little bit of background about the um, activities that Jesus has gone through before the Nicodemus. Sometimes I've heard this referred to as the very first episode of Nick at Night, but you have to be old enough to understand that. Um, It's only been about a week or 10 days, and I'm pointing up there at Cana, that Jesus has been up here and he changed water into wine. Why is that significant? John tells us that that was his very first miraculous sign. I used to think, well, he might have performed other ones, and this just happens to be the first one that he did in that area or something. But if you read John very carefully, John is telling you, no, this is the first time that he performed a miraculous sign like this. And don't forget, for those of you that know the story, the wine was really good, wasn't it? I mean, they blamed the bridegroom for bringing out the best wine last. So why do I bring this up? Because John also tells us that this this little miracle of changing water into wine up here at Cana, he, you know, he's, he's amongst people who know him. He was raised here in Nazareth. He's almost 30 years old now. He's familiar with the people around here. They know him. They don't know him as Jesus, the Savior. They know him as Jesus, the son of Mary. But... Changing that water into wine, don't forget, it wasn't just a little bit of wine either. It was six pots that held anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons, and it was super stuff. 150 gallons or more of great wine at the end of the ceremony. So why do I emphasize that? Because John tells us that from there, Jesus and four of his disciples, and I won't stop to tell you who they were, but... Uh, Andrew and Peter, of course, and a couple of others. But they went over to Capernaum, which is on the very northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus made his headquarters there while he did his ministry. And it was Andrew's home as well and, and so on. But it just went up there to rest for a couple of days. Also says his mother went with him. Don't know why John thought that was important to know, but he tells us that. But he also tells us that it's time for the Passover feast. So the next thing we find is he's gone down here and usually the traveling from this area of Galilee. And don't forget, there's a lot of people going. Maybe as millions millions of people, a million people gathering around Jerusalem during the Feast of the Passover. Celebrating when the Israelites came out of Egypt 1,500 years ago. They travel down like this. They stay away from Samaria. Coming down along the east side of the Jordan River here. Cross over at Jericho and for those of you that have been over there in that area it's very uphill and winding going from Jericho up to Jerusalem. Um, So he's at Jerusalem and what is the first thing that Jesus does when he arrives here according to John? The other three gospels present this a little different and I feel like this is one of those things that John does say oh by the way after he started his ministry up here in Cana and all these people are talking about the great wine as they're talking to each other, traveling down this road, going to the, uh, to the Passover feast, Jesus gets a whip and chases the flea market out of the temple. That in itself was just really upsetting to the Jewish council, the rulers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, and so on. So that has happened, and now what I want to do is take you and back just a little bit because John does something right here to keep us in the story, if you will. <clears throat> At the very end of chapter 2, and after chasing the money changers and the people who were selling livestock and so on out of the temple, to John, that's the two big things that he's done, but... He doesn't go into some other miracles that Jesus was probably doing during the Passover. Look what he does in John 23 and 24 and 25. It's the very end of chapter 2 before we bring in Nicodemus. Now while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in him. See, there's other things. He was apparently healing and so on, and giving sight to the blind. The other gospels tells us the kinds of things that he did but before Nicodemus and in between chasing chasing the people out of the temple who were changing money and and selling the lambs and and, uh, the goats and so on but he chased uh, he did miraculous signs but jesus would not trust them for he knew all men he did not need man's testimony about man for he knew what was in man i read one translation that this last part Down here, instead of saying he knew what was in man, he said he knew what man was thinking. So I want you to keep that in mind as we we take a little deeper look at the confrontation with Nicodemus here. Back to our beginning of our story of Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. A man of the Pharisees, how do they know that? Well, I did some research and found out these people of the ruling council, they all dressed differently. They had special garb that they wore. And the Pharisees dressed differently than the Sadducees, who dressed differently than the Essenes, who dressed differently than the Zealots. But you could, if you knew the, how they dressed, you knew they all belonged to the ruling council. Why? Well, they were, you know, they perhaps. We read other places where they probably had a band on their wrist and had a little box with scripture verses in it. Some of them wore a band around their head. They called it flacteries. They had a scripture verses in there. You knew who the Jewish ruling council was. They were, if you were a Jew, you knew who they were. And if, if you knew anything about their makeup, you knew who the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were the most number part. There were 71 of them altogether, counting the high priest. Um, <clears throat> you knew there was a, he was a Pharisee, because they told people what to do. They're the largest in the number of the four particular groups, the sects we call it, S-E-C-T-S, um, of, the, of the Jewish ruling council, often referred to as a Sanhedrin. But <clears throat> anyway, Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish ruling council, that Sanhedrin, that 71 people. And he came to Jesus at night, Why come at night? Well, he just didn't really, you know, since you're so recognizable, you really didn't want all the other members of the Sanhedrin to know you went because you wanted to talk to Jesus a little bit. He's upsetting the apple cart here and making the ruling people upset. So he's going to come and address Jesus by himself. And doing it at night, not so many people will know about it. Of course, Jesus has got some disciples with him, and John is relating this to us. So he came at night, and he said, Rabbi often refer to that as, that's like if you're in the college setting, sometimes you refer to your teacher as a teacher, and sometimes you refer to him as a professor. Um, most of the people refer to me as Billy. But anyway, uh, we, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if, we're not, if God were not with him. He's making quite a concession here. And notice that in an off-handed way, Nicodemus is kind of trying to say, hey, you know, nice job, right? Also, Nicodemus, is, is he not secure in his position? Actually, in the, amongst the Jews, he's risen to a place of real prominence. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He, he tells what people to do. He tells them how far they can walk on Sunday. He tells them how much they can carry from one house to another. It tells them how far you can carry that from. Go- I mean, he has all kinds of rules that he makes up. Uh, I even read one for if houses were too far apart, even dreamed up, they even dreamed up the idea to build, you know, a little strip of covering over that so it wouldn't be too far. They could call it all one house that way. They did, that's why Jesus called them hypocrites because they did silly things like that. So everybody knew who the the Pharisees were. So in his way, he thinks he's giving Jesus a compliment. Now look what happens here. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. Wham! No one goes to the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again. Nicodemus didn't say anything about how do I get to heaven. He said, we know you're from God. You have to be from God. You couldn't do these things if you weren't. <clears throat> Out of the blue, Jesus like, mm. unless you are born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. Um, I, I put myself in Nicodemus' place. One minute he's thinking he's a member of the Jewish ruling council and everything is okay. He's going to heaven. There's no doubt in his mind about it. Think about that. He, that's not a question with him he's interested in what how Jesus could do these things is you know Jesus is telling people he's the Messiah and Nicodemus says, what's going on here I know you're from God but let's find out what's happening here unless you're born again you can't so Nicodemus says how can how can we be born when he's old surely you can't enter your mother's womb and be born again Notice the difference here and I won't come back to it again too much, I hope the levels of thinking. Jesus is talking to him from God's perspective, is he not? And what is Nicodemus doing? He's coming to him from the human expect- perspective. You know, You can't go back to your mother's womb and be born again. Jesus answered, "I tell you the truth." No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And you shouldn't be surprised at my saying this, that you must be born again. Let's go back here just a little bit. <clears throat> I, you know, I read and you, you look at Bible scholars, and Bible scholars want to get into big discussions here, and I suppose some ministry students got their PhDs fussing over this. I rather look at it rather simply, because Jesus says here, you know, you've got to be born of water, regular birth, or of the spirit, spiritual birth. Why do we need to go on there and discuss what the water might mean or what the spirit might mean? Something Bible scholars just want to trash that, in my opinion, because in Jesus is really pretty plain. You need to have your spirit changed, just like when you were born in the flesh, And he tells Nicodemus, you shouldn't be surprised at my saying this. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from, where it's going. So with everyone born of the Spirit. We can't see the wind. That's what Jesus is saying. And the same thing is true with the Spirit. You can't see it, but you can know its effects. Just like the wind, I mean, as a comparison. He's trying to speak to him on a level that he might understand But look at Nicodemus. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. I think Jesus has finally given up. You're Israel's teacher? And you don't understand these things? Now why would Jesus say that? I, I got pondering on that. And Here's a member of the Jewish ruling council, as we call him, the Sanhedrin. And he's got a position of influence in the church. And yet Jesus is saying, you know you don't you don't seem to understand these things well even jewish boys in those days had to memorize a lot of scripture and if you were going to be a member of the sanhedrin you had to memorize a lot of scripture all of what we know as the old testament and maybe you know maybe you didn't have to memorize it all but you had to be very familiar with it you need to know what it told tells you so i'm looking at this and why would jesus say that to him and i found that there are there's a place in Deuteronomy. There's another one in Jeremiah. Uh, I like the one in Ezekiel here, who in my mind really explains why Jesus might say that to him. Ezekiel 36, and of course Ezekiel was talking to people who had been exiled, and, and the Israelite nation did not exist anymore at this time when Ezekiel was talking to these people. And Ezekiel is trying to encourage the exiled people for when they go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall, it's, it's during this time. Ezekiel says, I'll give you a new spirit, a new heart, and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Listen, look at this last one. And I will put, whoops, I'm sorry, I pushed the wrong button. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Is there ever a better description of what it means to be born again than this right here in the Old Testament? What what this is saying? I get a picture. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you should understand this. When you're born and it's no fault of ours, we are born sinners. We hear that all the time. That's because Adam and Eve sinned and we're descendants of Adam and Eve. So when we're born, our spirit is aligned with Satan. We, you know, we desire to do things for ourselves and, you know, sinful kinds of things. When you decide to become a follower of Jesus, it's like you move over here and you become a follower of Christ. Oh, that's not to say that those things over there leave you totally, you know. But your intention is to be over here. That, that seems to me like what Ezekiel is saying here. I, you know, I change your heart. Your desire will be to do God's will, not Satan's. Oh, you may do some things over here, like we said sometimes, but your desire is over here. And you do... You deliver meals on wheels because you care about people and you care about Christ and the kinds of things that Christ wants you to do. I don't know how to make it any simpler than that. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you should understand that. It's more than one place in the Bible. I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen. But still, you people, you people would be the Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulers. You people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things. Talked about the wind you know, blowing to try to get Nicodemus to understand. And you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who comes from heaven. <clears throat> I put these in, in red. Because I want to make sure that we understood that this is Jesus talking. This is not um, Matthew or Luke or somebody's, you know, and trust me, I, I, I trust the inspired word of God. But it just seems to me to make s- so certain that this is Jesus speaking to a man like you and me. And I'll get to that in just a moment. Just, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert... So the Son of Man must be lifted up. I need to pause there. There may be those. um, When the Israelite nation was led out of Egypt by Moses, and this would have been 1,500 years before this, when when they did that, near the end of their 40 years on the desert, near the end, they were invaded by snakes, venomous snakes. People were dying. And they started calling out to the Lord, Lord, and and Moses, help us out here, come on. And Moses prayed to God, and God told Moses, okay, make a bronze snake and put it on a pole and take it up there on that hill, and everyone who is bitten by a snake and is in fear of dying can go and look up at that snake, that bronze snake up there, and they'll be healed. And they were. And pretty soon they were able to move on And later there's a story, you know, entering the promised land and so on. But that's what Jesus is referencing here, something that happened 1,500 years ago. And the similarity between looking up at that bronze snake and looking up at Christ on the altar. Because Jesus already knows, I mean on the cross, Jesus already knows that that's what's going to happen to him. So that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. People who looked up at the snake were given their life back. People who look up at the cross and see Jesus there, accept him as their savior, have eternal life. For God, I'm I'm praying that all of this build up for the most important verse in the whole Bible, I feel, gets to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son... We have religions, even in our country, that think Jesus wasn't the only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We all know that verse so well. Um, My goal this morning is that we make sure that we understand that Jesus was talking to a person like you and me who thinks they're okay. For God did not send his son, God did not send me into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, through me. He's he's talking to Nicodemus and he's referring to himself. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he hasn't believed in the name of God's one and only son. In academic circles, we call that very tight logic. You begin the sentence and you end up defending the sentence with the same thing that you start with. It's because you didn't believe, you're condemned because you didn't believe. It's just, it's that very, it's very tight. Why does he say that? Because as I said earlier, we are born as sinners, and we stand condemned unless we're born again. Jesus declared, you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. Let me see if I can pull all this together and connect the dots that I've tried to create here. I see Nicodemus as not so much different from a lot of us. He thought he was OK. We are inundated in our world today. And this is my, it's, it's a monstrous fear of mine. I see it in my own family. I'm OK. I can decide how to get to heaven. You don't. Know, there's lots of ways to go to heaven. Just be good. How many funerals do you go to? He was a good man. Sometimes I just I just want to go, oh. I remember a funeral I went to, and, and the pastor referred to this man being welcomed into the arms of Jesus, and he was a good man. And I knew this man, and I'm, and I'm not here to judge. That's not it. But I'm telling you, I didn't know that we were familiar with the same man. Being a good man, you know, doing good things because you join the right organizations in the community or you raise a lot of money for United Way or you, I mean, you do all of those kinds, that's fine. That's a good thing. But Jesus said, you must be born again. He didn't leave any alternatives. He didn't leave it room for you and me to decide how we're going to do that. And let me tell you about my veteran, because I said I would. My veteran took the piece of paper, and he had one hand on the door handle, and I think the door was already ajar. And he looked at the piece of paper, and he said, Oh, that's that, that. You can't believe what that says and he went like that he opened the door and slammed the door and walked away. I have not seen him since. But you see for people who feel like that they can decide how it is that they're going to get to heaven are not much different than my veteran. Oh, they don't. They don't. They're not so honest and open about it perhaps. But you know, if you do good things at your funeral, they'll say you were a good person. Have you ever been to a funeral that the person that's there didn't go to heaven? I've never been to a funeral where they declared that the, that the person in the casket was going to hell. I've never been to one. I imagine some of them did. Again, I'm not trying to judge. I'm just saying. We need to get honest with ourselves like Jesus was with Nicodemus. Unless you are born again, you don't go to heaven. That's what Jesus said. <clears throat> so I hope I brought this into focus with you and where my concern is with the culture that we live in. This, this notion that there's just so many ways to get there and that everybody's good. And I can give, can give you an author of, a, of a, the name of an author that wrote a book that would have you believe that you don't go to heaven. And after I read that book, I read it on purpose to see what he had to say. I wanted to say, so why did Jesus die? If all he said was true, Jesus didn't need to die. He didn't need to go to that cross and surrender himself for you and me. But he did because of our condemnation of when we were born. So, this morning, what I just, you know, having said all of that the best way that I know how and with the Lord's help, I just want to say if, you know, I can look around and see your faces. If you're here today and you don't know that you've been born again, would you, when we close the service, come up and see me? I'd be happy to pray with you. I pick on two or three other people that I know. Wes Nelson is sitting up here, um, Donnie Hofer. I pick one in the middle here, uh, Palmer Holm. I, I know these gentlemen well enough to know that if you just walked up to them and said, You know, I just want to pray and know that if I were to die today, that I would go to heaven. I don't know that I've been born again. I just. I want, to, I want you to know there's that opportunity. I'll hang around up here. I'd love to pray with somebody like, that wanted to do that. Jesus went to that cross, paid the penalty for our sins, and he did that because there's only one way to get to heaven. We have to have a change inside of our heart that changed our devotion from Satan to God, from ourself to him. Would you stand, please, and be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for your word and for how plainly it speaks to us. We thank you for Christ's time on earth, his death and resurrection. And I just pray that if there's some here to this day that needs to pray a prayer that assures their destiny is in heaven with you, I just pray that they would have the courage to do it. And now may the grace of God and the love of Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide on each one as we go our separate ways this day. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.